Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced in partnership with Zurich Insurance and all about the value and selection of outside directors for captive insurance company boards. Our good friend Paul Verman, head of captive services at Zurich, has brought together five expert speakers on this topic, three of which are already independent directors of captive boards. Over the next 25 minutes, you will hear from Andrew Bradley, Malcolm Cutts Watson and Francois Carley who have all had careers packed full with captive experience and now sit on captive boards today. We are also joined by Xavier Grofils, the manager of the Luxembourg Captive owned by the Belgian multinational chemical company Solvay and Hans-Peter Wagenhofer, director of insurance and reinsurance at German multinational BASF. Our expert panel discusses the definition of outside and independent directors, how they are viewed in different jurisdictions around Europe and the value that they can bring to a captive board. But Malcolm begins by outlining what he believes are the key responsibilities of a captive board and outside directors. The first question really is what what's the purpose of a board and and if we go to the uh, institute of directors they quote that the board's purpose is, is to ensure the company's prosperity by collectively directing the company's affairs while meeting appropriate interests of shareholders and relevant stakeholders which is a pretty standard definition but what i find interesting is there's no explicit mention there of oversight or challenge which you would think would be a key role of the board. What I what I then did was basically look at all the various domicile captive regulations and guidance notes and codes of conduct and try and translate those into the Institute of Directors definition. And what you end up with is quite a comprehensive list of requirements of a captive board. So you've got technical requirements such as risk management, insurance, accounting, legal. You've got the need for strategic thinking. You've got the need to demonstrate corporate governance and compliance, and you've got the need to show judgment uh, and ability to build trust and to understand the parent company business. And I suppose the, the, the question then is, you know, what composition of the board is best suited to deliver that? And then if we move on to, is there a role there for the outside director or the independent non-executive director? You're effectively looking for someone or something to provide independent oversight and constructive challenge to the executive directors. And by implication, I think that that's saying you do need a, an outside director on a captive board. And the last comment I'd like to make is, well, you know, is there consistency amongst all the captive domiciles as to whether you need an outside director? And the answer quite clearly is no. AMIC produced a captive governance guide back in 2019, and it demonstrates quite clearly the requirements are very different in, in different domiciles. So there's no global standard. Thank you, Malcolm. And I'm glad you cited the AMIC guide on non-executive directors for captives because we will be actually updating that in the first quarter of 2023 and in time for the Captives Forum held on 21st of March, which I hope you and, and some of our other guests on this podcast will be able to attend. Paul, let's talk about the definitions then and requirements of outside directors, because as Malcolm touched upon, the, de the definition can vary. Can only local residents be appointed as board members of captives? And, and what is the status of ex-employees who are retired from the company uh, kind of being treated as outside board directors? Generally speaking, uh, the national supervisory laws require that board members of captives must have a good reputation, which means they have not committed any relevant criminal 
or other offence and have not been blacklisted by the regulator based on previous conduct. Also, they need to possess sufficient professional know-how as well as experience for the role. Under Solvency 2, this is called fit and proper assessment. Furthermore, I understand that the regulators require that the members of the board of directors must be a natural person and not a legal entity. Since the complexity, uh, Richard, of the captive business has increased significantly, I'm of the opinion that an international discussion of the risk management community regarding the definition of unified qualification criteria for captive board members could prove to be worthwhile for Europe, as it was indicated by uh, Malcolm, as we have uh, just uh, heard on the example of UK. Economically, I would say that outside board members are to be interpreted as those who are not employees of the parent company or its group companies. Some captive locations require a minimum number of external board members. Others have no such requirement. According to Swiss regulations, at least one third of the board members need to be independent. However, the Swiss insurance regulator may grant exceptions for captives. I have been told that in Switzerland, board members were not considered to be independent if they have been employed by the customer group company in some other function in the last two years, or if they are commercially linked with it in a way which could lead to conflicts of interest. Whether former employees of the parent company are considered to be independent, board members must, of course, be checked per captive location. Internationally, the captive regulators often require that at least one board member has to be a so-called resident, which of course can also be an employee of a group company or, as I have often observed, also the representative of an external captive manager. Thank you, Paul. And it is, it is a really good question to explore, really, regarding former employees joining the captive board. It's not something I'd ex I'd explored before, but I'm certainly aware of retired risk managers joining the board of the captive that they previously had interaction with when they were a full-time employee. Xavier, from the captive owner perspective, how do you characterise then the discussions between internal and external board members uh, in your company? Have, have you identified any kind of conflicts of interest or conflicts of discussion in terms of their perspectives? Well, I would like first to, to start and, and, and say uh, what's the situation in Luxembourg, because uh, just to set the scene and, and, and let you understand, because in Luxembourg, the location is quite open uh, regarding the, the topic of external board members and other board members. So uh, it's quite free from that perspective. Here in Luxembourg, the, there is just one requirement is that, the, of course, as Paul was, was explaining, that there is a, a, the, the fit and proper principle uh, uh, under Solvency 2 is met and that we have a minimum of three board members. But there is no obligation to have uh, an external board member or even to have a local board member. So you could have all board members made of uh, uh, foreign people. But having said that, from a, from a tax perspective, in terms of permanent establishment, it might be difficult to explain that your company is located in Luxembourg if the board is composed only from 
foreign board members. So having said that, in my perspective and in our company, uh, we have a corporate culture of including external board members inside our boards in all group companies. And so we have exactly the same uh, approach in terms of, of captive board members. So uh, in our board, we, we have a board of six people and we have two external board members, so people that uh, are not working for the group. And so uh, under the definition uh, of Switzerland, we have even an ex-employee of the group that is considered as an external board member. But also I have some experience uh, of uh, other boards when, when I was working for another company. And so there I experienced in the past that indeed uh, you could see either some complacency with the external board members or even sometimes some challenges between the existing uh, board members and these newcomers or these uh, internal and external board members. And this is then materializing in some uh, ways to circumvent these external board members to be included into the decision process of, uh, of the board. And that is maybe some, some, some problem. Also, I have seen uh, differences in terms of remuneration because an external board member is generally remunerated while internal board members are remunerated on another way. And it's not uh, always the case that internal board members are remunerated for the role that they, that they pursue in, in the board of the, of the captain. So what I have seen as a, as potential conflict of interest is about, for instance, the, the reserving strategy of the company. So um, in some board, I've seen a board that was composed of all members of the, the GBUs of a company. So each board member was representing at the same time his own GBU. And at the same time, he was a board member of the captive. And so in my view, that was really a conflict of interest because when there was a claim uh, to be decided upon, he was, to a certain extent, pushing to help pay as much as possible because it will help his GBU. But at the same time, this is also uh, not in favor of the captive that where he is also a board member and where he should uh, behave exactly on the, 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 the reverse way. So in my view, that's a, that's a problem of conflict of interest. In that case, an external board member could help to, uh, to avoid. Also, I see another conflict of interest is uh, regarding the uh, solvency to ORSA exercise. So we could see uh, the cases where uh, you have a captive that is investing in, in a group uh, in O's bank. So in the case that the solvency uh, ratio of the mother company is decreasing and there are some signs that um, it might be that the, the cash that is invested in this in-house in bank is in danger, then the board members would have to take a decision that is going against their employer if they are an internal board member, because then there is really a conflict of interest again. Will they uh, push to help the, the captive and so uh, withdraw the money that is inside this in-house bank? Or will they work for their employer that is also paying their salary and um, keep the money invested in the in-house bank and so uh, helping the group? So um, these are two examples where indeed the question of in-house uh, board members and external board members yeah, is making a difference. 
Thank you, Xavier. Really good to have the kind of direct captive perspective there. Francois, what qualifications do you expect then from captive board members and, and how do you view the value of diversity? Because I think on the diversity question, it's probably fair to say that particularly in, in some jurisdictions, there's, there's a lot of very old white men on a lot of captive boards. And it is something that is probably in greater need of, of, my, of more diversity, not just on gender. Um, I think you'll touch on that in the second part of your answer. But first of all, what are the kinds of qualifications that might make a a good board director for you. Thank you, Richard. Yes, I agree with you. Diversity is going to be a nice topic. Uh, first of all, let's let's just browse through the various qualifications we can think of. Uh, for me, what is critical in that position is that you behave as a non-executive. You are not there to give orders, to do things, to realize um, different uh, uh, parts of the activity. No, you are there as a non-executive, which means you do not execute. And this is very important because if you don't have that kind of position, you're going to make uh, more uh, tension in the board than anything else. And in France, there are some uh, um, diplomas that you can get for being a board member and an independent board member because they teach you how to behave as outside element of the executive team, supporting, influencing, inspiring, helping but not doing. And I think this is really critical. So you don't have, I haven't seen anywhere, a typical diploma for being an outside board member in captives, but it exists for different type of industries. And it is clear that it helps you behave the proper way, avoid conflicts of interest, etc., etc. Of course, you can think also of technical qualification. Yes, it's a real plus if you are a specialist in insurance or in risk management or why not in solvency, solvency two issues. And um, you can also think of actuarial or that kind of uh, of ideas, as well as uh, a specialist in uh, the industry where the captive is working. Like uh, if you are in the pharmaceutical uh, business and you have a captive from a biotech company, it, it is meaningful. But the reality is that all this is, uh, for me, more a plus than a must, because if you have the, the right a position in the in the board, you're going to bring what is important, which is a contribution to the discussion and, of course, a good assessment of the situation. And this is where diversity gets its full dimension. So I agree with you. There are a lot of um, male, white, I would say, educated in the risk management or insurance industry that are parts of the board. And if we want to give to this kind of tool a much bigger uh, footprint on the market, we should really think about more females with um, a real spread of the ages. You can have young, but you can have mature people with different education background, with different nationality, with different culture. And I think this is exactly what is happening in the large companies around the world. Why shouldn't we have that in the captive business? So it is critical that people understand that all this broad set of experience is giving another way to assess what's happening in the board and to support and help the executives that are part of the board 
team. So if I could conclude in a certain way, I think that to have a very good outside board member, you should not rely really on the recommendation you receive on everything you have that tells you take this person or take that person. But you should really do exactly what you do when you're today uh, performing recruitment processes for top guns in a company. They usually go through a lot of questions, but what you're looking for is a behavior a fit with the company culture, an added value or contribution position. And this doesn't really mean you are in the top first two or three percent of the business you are in. It much more means that you're bringing something that the others don't have. So diversity is key. And I'm not in favor of quotas like you have in many different uh, words. You have women and young and I would say different gender balance in the system. I'm not favorable to quotas. But I think that if our team is um, pushing a lot for a, a real governance on uh, captive board membership, I think we could also push the diversity area and it would do good to this world. Thank you, Francois. That, that's also a really good segue, actually, into my next question to Malcolm, which is on, on recruitment, Malcolm. So in terms of recruitment of board members, of captive board members, you've done a bit of work in this area. Is there a criteria for the kind of perfect board member when you're looking to recruit one? Is, does, does the perfect board member even exist? I don't think I'd say there's a criteria. I think there's a process. And I think we all recognize the historical method of, of personal recommendations or old boys network, you know, has has some flaws. And, and it's hard to avoid the um, the accusations of male, pale and stale, as, as we've mentioned. So I think what I'm seeing now is a move to a, a more professional way of recruiting outside directors. And I would say it's a transparent and objective process that is defensible so that if you are challenged, you can demonstrate why you have partic- appointed a particular candidate. And it's really no different than the process you'd follow if you were recruiting an executive in that initially you start off by uh, assessing the captive business plan and and strategy and what you think are going to be the developing trends over the next, say, two years. Then assess what sort of attributes and competences are needed by the board to to respond to those. And that includes things like ESG and, and as Francois mentioned, diversity. And then once you realize what you need, you can map against what your existing skill set in the board is. And I'm assuming here that the boards are pursuing an annual evaluation of their performance. So they will have some base information to work from. And and then once you've done that, really, you can prepare a job description for the non-exec, listing out the specific requirements. And then you can start a recruitment process. And, And increasingly, what we're seeing now, I think, is rather than just relying on the manager's putting forward a, a panel of candidates, we're actually seeing professional um, source or search uh, agencies being used. And, and that is bringing in the diversity that Francois was mentioning. So they're not the same old faces, it's new names. And then obviously go through an interview process to make sure there's a cultural fit. And then if you do appoint the person, then there needs to be a proper onboarding process. So that the, there's a contract outlining what they're obligations and responsibilities uh, are, what the expectations are of the role. And also there needs to be a proper induction process so that the new board member really feels integrated into the, the board. 
Great. Thank you, Malcolm. And I, and I think you mentioned there the term new names, and, and that's really key, I think, to both the diversity issue, but also just freshening it up and, and moving away from the kind of old boys club perception, because there probably is a danger of someone having too many board memberships if there's a, a small pool to choose from. I don't know what the optimal number is and if, if you have a view on that. It's interesting because, for example, in Guernsey, if you sit on the boards of other financial service regulated entities, there's a limit of six entities that you can sit on. Um, and that's never been applied in the insurance or captive world. Um, so you have had in the past a ridiculous situation where you know a person could be sitting on 40 plus boards, which really does seem inappropriate. And I suppose it raises the question of whether there needs to be some sort of global standards, which maybe the captive industry as a whole could promote in terms of what they think is an appropriate number. That's a good point and and brings me nicely on to the question to Andrew Bradley. Andrew, have you come across any kind of industry-initiated standards associated with the selection and role of captive board members? You and Malcolm um, alluded to one earlier, but I did some independent research uh, looking at various captive domiciles like the US, Bermuda, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and Singapore. And I couldn't find any specific documents about independent board members, except the one that you mentioned earlier relating to uh, AMIC, who issued quite a comprehensive document back in 2019 about the corporate governance and specifically related to independent non-exec captive board members. It covers things like uh, the benefits of having one, which Malcolm has mentioned already, who qualifies, the process of appointing one, measuring the performance of the outside board member, which is, I think is a, an interesting topic, and some key takeaways, both for the um, non-exec captive board member and the captive owners. And as, as you correctly uh, mentioned before, AMIC will update this document uh, next year. And I think there's going to be a, a session on this at um, their conference next year in March in um, London. But from what I've, I've seen so far, it seems to be that um, outside captive board members aren't necessarily taken up and included in a board unless it's required by the, uh, the local captive domicile. So if there's no requirements it's unlikely you're going to get an outside board member, except I found a few cases where forward-thinking companies have expressly gone out to to um, have not only one, but sometimes two outside board members to challenge what they do and have that extra experience uh, in managing the company. So I think this is still very much work in progress and an important part of captive governments but i think people some somehow need to see the value of outside board members because i'm not sure whether that's coming through just at the moment thank you andrew i I certainly think there is an upward trend perhaps happening slowly but from my own knowledge i think it is mostly the captives and parents at the much larger end of the scale who are making a real effort to, to go in above and beyond what the regulator requires and looking to bring in that outside expertise to the captive boards and, and trying to find some really sophisticated uh, professionals who can, who can bring that value. Let's finish then with Hans-Peter with the risk manager and captive owner perspective again. Hans-Peter, how do you view, how do you value the, the benefit of external board members and, and what are the most important requested skills? Okay, let's uh, let's say um, for the time being, uh, we in uh, BSF we use only internal board members. We had uh, some period of time where we used external one, and this was basically done due to the fact that uh, our own employees haven't been 
at this place it was Bermuda and uh, so we used external board members and uh, when we are doing this and when we did this we strong interested in that they bring some experience uh, out of uh, the insurance industry maybe even some underwriting knowledge and uh, which helps us finally to go the right uh, way with the captive yeah. that uh, was BSF but once again we don't do it at the moment yeah.